His name's Al. The, the family's name's Alan. Uh -huh. What's his name? Patrick. Patrick. Anybody else? Anybody else? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning, your words. Um, um, you call us to yourself. You call us to yourself. Um, do you remember the reading this morning, Doug? Yeah, let it go. Yes, it was the one where he was called to the centurion's house. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you came for all of us. came for all of us. Um, not just your own um, racial line, um, the Jewish line. Um, for all of us. And um, the centurion um, who'd come who had this great power of authority and was used to exercising it, was facing something he couldn't change. Um, he had a servant, somebody he loved dying, couldn't command um, the boy to recover his health. Um, and he had enough faith in you um, to turn to you and ask you to do it, and you did. And we're reminded um, think sometimes how weak our faith is. It's almost like we don't believe enough that you could do great things because we can't. Strengthen each of us in, your, in our faith that we can turn to you, particularly where, um, where we face our own weaknesses, that there are things we can't do um, with ourselves, with others. Strengthen us, please. Um, increase our faith. Heal us, please. Make us whole, each one of us. Ask a special blessing on Marcy. Um, surround her with your protection. Um, know that she's in our prayers, that we carry her in our heart, however stubborn she is. Um, watch over Bob's sister, Barbara. Um, protect her, please. Um, um, help her in her ordeal um, come closer to you. Let the ordeal be a means of drawing her closer to you. Let it be so for all of us, whatever our struggles are. Um, ask for a special blessing on Valerie and Chester's daughter um, and on Valerie. Um, we're thankful that she's here tonight after some of the stupid things somebody on the road did. Um, um, watch over Tracy um, and Madison. Um, help that young girl, please. Help her find help. Um, she won't have an easy life. At some point in her life, help her to hold on until a moment comes when something can help turn her. Um, and I'm sure that there are some things that people aren't saying. Whatever our struggles, whatever they are, silently help each one of us um, to stay close to you to be glad, however hard it is, in the face of those struggles. We offer these prayers um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to, instead of 
I, I was going to read Hopkins tonight, but I'm not going to. I'm going to read a psalm. I, I'm not even sure that I can give you a reason, but remember last week when um, one of the one of the points that I was trying to make is that there is this logos in life that that Christ is always there. I'm going to come back to this and just immediately, but. Um, I read the Kingfisher's Catch Fire poem. Do you remember Kingfisher's Catch Fire? Dragonflies draw flames, stones go down the wall, the bell. Everything in nature speaks. And I reminded everybody of uh, Supernatural Love, the poem about the woman looking back at herself when she was a four-year-old child. And, and remember, everything that poem speaks. Her dad doesn't hear it. He, he's an intellectual. He's a scholar. He's in his head. She's a four-year-old girl. But the woman now, the four-year-old has matured. I presented that poem when we've gone over it. I really believe that moment signifies a calling for her as a person. Um, the, every, every word, word blossoms, flower. That some people, Shakespeare and Dante, I think, were overcome by beauty. I think Homer was, even, even though he's probably blind. That certain individuals are captivated by some transcendent power, whatever it is, goodness, beauty, truth, it doesn't matter. But um, when they are, it, they're going to live differently from the rest of us. They, they're just more sensitive, they see more, feel more, and those who go on to be poets give us these things. And I think that poem, Supernatural Love, is not just about a four-year-old, it, it, it's the beginning of a calling. She doesn't say that in the poem, you know, I, you, you can argue with me on that. I, I just, I, it's, to me, it's so clear that words, that the importance of those for her as a young child go back to some early experiences like that. And that was the beginning of her calling as a poet. But you know in that poem that everything speaks. The string, the scissors, the needle, the beloved, the sampler, even the, page, the, the words off the page in the dictionary. When the father goes to the dictionary, he quotes a word as if it's speaking. So this, this woman, this poet, recalls this moment. And what we experience, because what she did, is that this young girl participates in the crucifixion. It's not, she's pricking her finger. Um, um, but we also experience this, um, this almost something miraculous, that everything speaks. And she was sensitive enough to feel that. And... Um, give it a poetic form later in her life. So we did that. I just reminded you of that poem. We did Kingfisher's Catch Fire. And if you remember, Hopkins says, everything speaks for this I came. Everything, everything speaks. So when we ended last week with my um, asking you about these rhymes in Chaucer and why this rhyming and so just hold on to this sense as we go forward tonight. I'm, I'm going to come to it explicitly in a minute because it's part of the review. But um, we live in an age that denies the logos, ignores it. It's, it. it's sort of strange, if you paradoxical to me, ironic, if you think about the sciences. If, if anybody would have... Einstein had very clearly said that life makes no sense without a mystery, without God. Um, Einstein is very clear about that. I, it's, hard, it's just so hard for me to imagine a scientist being rational at all and not admitting to God because everything in nature to a scientist is intelligible. 
That's their job. There's not anything in nature that's not intelligible. If, that, if that's so, how did so many different things come to have that property of intelligibility if there wasn't an intelligent creator behind them? So, um, remember the importance of singing and words. Um, um, so, anyway, hold, hold on to those two poems, Supernatural Love and Kingfisher's The Imports of the Logos. The, the Jews, um, Old Testament Jews, had a strong sense of the word, even though they wouldn't have put it the way we do. The, the Greeks really have given us this notion of the Logos, but I'm going to read one of the Psalms that, that hints at the importance of words and how hard it is to find words when we're not with God. That if we don't, if God isn't in our life, it's as if a well dries up and we can't find the words to express so many of our own experiences. The poets have been doing that for us, you know, for those of you who've been doing this for years. So, Psalm 139. Remember, they're in captivity now, and um, their captors want them to sing. And the question they're asking, how can we sing when we're in exile, when we've lost our God, our home, our temple? Because the, for these Jews, their temple was everything, worshiping God. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. Remember the lyre, why the, why the poem is called Lyric, because it was always put to music. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors, mirth, sang, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, raise it, raise it, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastator, happy shall he be who requites you with what you've done to us. Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. There's this deep sense of justice in the Jewish psyche. If somebody does something wrong, requite them. But the beauty here is that um, is that they're lamenting that they've lost a voice. Um, that um, once they're taken out from the presence of God, it's hard to find that original voice. I've been arguing from the beginning that the poets are the ones who take us back to help us recover that voice. Okay. And I think Chaucer's doing that. Okay. Very, very quick review. Um, I, I think I told you all that um, I'm teaching Literature's Prophecy out at um, Elizabeth Ann Seton. Um, we started last week, did I tell you? Yeah. yeah. Um, we're starting Merchant of Venice because I wanted to start, I didn't want to go back to the Iliad, I just think that was too quick a jump. So. We started with Merchant of Venice because I wanted everybody to find themselves in the Commercial Republic. So we're starting there. Tomorrow when we meet, I'm going to introduce them to Plato's Cave and talk about the city. So it's very much on my mind. So tonight I'm 
going to inflict a by association on you because it's very much on my mind. But I want, but I wanted to just remind everybody because it's 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 very much on my mind when I'm reading Chaucer. Remember when we started? One of the first things that I said is that we don't read very well. We don't see very well. We don't read very well. The more educated we are, the the more we think we know. If you want to try to explain something to an educated person, you know how hard it is because they. The more education you have, the more you assume that you know all the answers. The great contribution of Plato, all the Platonic dialogues, was that Socrates put that to rout. You know that he was condemned to death, he was executed, because um, he made everybody angry because when he began to question them and they said they had answers for them and he showed them that they didn't, they all got angry at them. And finally they took him to court and killed him. So one of the great contributions that Plato has made to us is that he, he, he makes us aware that we need to be careful um, that part of our growth comes from wonder, asking questions, standing with some awareness that we do not know. In our age, because everybody's educated, you, you, I think the great assumption is, because, and this is the great danger, the more knowledge you have, the more power you have over things. The more you know, the more you can control things. So we're in an age in which people are more given to knowing, believing that they know, because they've got to come up with answers and solutions and you know, solve problems and make everything okay. One of the things that Chaucer keeps showing us is that um, he's hardest on those people who think they know everything. They'll tell a story. Um, it's usually on somebody, and to get back, somebody will tell a story on them. I mean, there, there's this sense of one-upmanship. They've got to show themselves smarter and better than somebody else. So there's this spirit of envy running through all the tales. So just remember the, the, the Platonic critique, um, that the, the natural response, according to Plato, and it runs through the tradition, is um, to stand in wonder, to, to know that we're meant to learn and that we don't always know what we think we do. And I've been claiming one of the values of the poets is that they help us to see through the appearances of things. We think we know things, but there's a lot we don't see. And the poets help us to see that. Okay. So, um, quick review. In the Knight's Tale, one of the most important things we saw is that, is that Chaucer was going back to the Theseus story. Theseus is the founder of Western civilization, but he was Christianizing it. He completely redid the Theseus story. Remember, Theseus oversees the battle between these two knights, and it's over a matter of courtly love. They both love the same woman, and a, a duel ensues, and, and whoever wins is going to... We've been through it. Just as a reminder, what what... Chaucer is doing is what Homer, Virgil, Dante, all of them did. They, they, they carry the past forward and make it a part of the present. That's almost like God. Because remember, for God, there is no past or future. It's always an eternal now. So one of the great things the poets have always done is carry the past forward to redeem it, to make it a part of the present so it's still living. What an amazing power, yeah? And I, I want to underline that to be, today because in America, Americans do everything they can to get rid of the past. My mother's at blame. My father's at fault. 
get them out of my lives. We do everything we can to get rid of our past, run away from it, because it's full of wounds, particularly after Freud. What the great poets do is show this extraordinary power of love, that they make a place for the past, but they redeem it by what they do with it. Theseus, or Chaucer does that with the Theseus story. Okay? He Christianizes it. What motivates everything in there is love and wisdom. Shakespeare does the same thing with Midsummer Night's Dream. He's taking the Theseus story as well. What we see in Shakespeare is that he shows, by what he does with it, that the West has a power of renewal. That's exactly what he's doing. In the East, remember, Pyramus and Thisbe die. The lovers die. They can't get back to the city. In Shakespeare, they do. The lovers do get back. So Shakespeare's concern is the city and um, reconciling law and love. So he does the same thing that Chaucer does. He's, he's bringing Theseus into the present, but he's, he's doing it with a sense of a larger scope. He's got the city in mind in a way that um, Chaucer doesn't. And I'm, I'm going to take a minute with just... Um, we had Father George over for dinner a couple of nights ago and we were talking about India and some of his grief about what's going on in India. And, but we got to the subject of immigration and we were talking about mm, the problem of immigration today. I know, I, I'm not going to go into this because it's, it's loaded and it's tangential here. But One of the interesting things that happens at the breakup of the Holy Roman Empire and the medieval Christian world, when the, the modern state emerges as an entity to itself, it frees itself from the church. You know how important that was for Dante. It was crucial for the commercial regime to get clear of the Pope and the Emperor so that people could make their choices about what they were going to do on their own. There was, that was a, a great advance in freedom, right? We've been there. Is everybody following? So Dante's at the, at, at the threshold at that point at which the modern state emerges. But freed from the church, the tendency of the modern state is to take on totalitarian powers everywhere. Now, what marked the West is the, it was different from the rest of the world, the European West, because it had this extraordinary respect for the dignity of each human being. That's Homer. Each individual is made in an image of God. That's the Bible. Moreover, a man and a woman had this special relationship because between the two of them, they could create life. They were the principle of continuity in our world. So the two fundamental things of our civilization were, was the dignity of the human person, the individual, made in the image of God, and marriage. Okay? That's our, that's our inheritance. And it was around those principles that we founded the West. I mean, what we know is European, European culture, the dignity of the individual and the family, the importance of marriage. Um, what, we're, what we're witnessing in the modern world is the secular world dissociated from God. And what we're seeing universally, internationally, in, is that the word globally? Yeah, globally, is mass immigrations everywhere because people are fleeing from totalitarian powers because they're so abusive. And it's created this massive problem everywhere in Europe, Africa, Asia, you know, all America. So we're, 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 it's interesting to, to go back to Shakespeare and Dante and Chaucer and all the others because 
Um, when we go back to them, we're reading people who are just at that point when this is happening, and they had some glimpse of some of these things. So there's a lot to learn from them. Okay, the emergence of this this entity called the secular state. I'm going to speak to it again next week. One of the poets said, once you've lived under a god and you turn to a secular state, you commit suicide. It, it's just, it, you, it's a choice for death. Turn away from God. Remember when we began, when I did the city? Remember what the origins of the city were? The city comes into existence with, um, what was no Enoch. Right? Cain is exiled after he kills Abel. This is biblical. Cain is exiled. His first son is Enoch. Enoch is the founder of the first city. What we learn biblically is that the city comes into existence when man separates himself from God. He wants to create a world of his, of his own. Separation from God. Those are the origins of the city. So the city has this extraordinary dual character. It can create these great things because man's great. But it also has this hidden darkness in it. These sinister other things going on that, that, that make it the source of a lot of violence. Chaucer's writing just before that's about to happen. And he's showing us a united England under one faith. So don't forget this. Even though every story is individual and these people tear each other apart, there's almost not a character in there that's not getting at somebody else. But, you know, the friar tells on the Sumner, the Sumner wants to get back at the friar, and they're all getting back at each other. They're really mean-spirited. But they're all united in this faith. They're, they have this shared faith. Um, we don't see the I mean, we don't get to Canterbury, and we don't get back, but that's as much as we have. So part of the humor is possible because they share this faith. It still holds them together. Okay. So Chaucer's great themes, one of the most important, is what the church has called bonum est diffusium. Bonum est diffusium. Diffusium. Goodness is diffusive. Chaucer had that in his bones. And, and by the way, he got that from Boethius in our Christian tradition. Because remember what Boethius said, there is no bad fortune. God allows everything to protect our free wills, but he does it, which means we're going to do horrible things. He allows that. that that's how great he is. But, but, but that means he's, oh God, he is never not at work trying to bring goodness out of our evil. That's what he does. Christ did it in an exemplary way. I mean, he redeemed us all. So, so bonum est diffusium. Goodness is diffusive. It overflows everywhere. No matter what's going on, goodness comes out of it. So, um, and I, I, I want to underscore this. We'll see it. I, I, I'm going to try to make the case in another way shortly, but... Um, remember, Boethius says there is no bad fortune. Every tale shows people getting what they deserve. A justice is coming. Whatever level of society, no matter what's going on, whatever stupid things they do, get answered. 
I hope that's clear. Every tale, no matter how stupid or mean the people are, their stupidity is answered. Chaucer can have a sense of humor about it because he trusts in God. He shows over and over again at every level of society. People are getting, they, they can't escape justice. They can't escape the, the consequences of their actions. But he's not doing it as a pagan. It's not severe and tragic and dark. There's a humor that he brings to everybody because he knows God's behind it. That's part of what he brings. That's the joy of Chaucer. He has this great faith. Um, so the importance of goodness. Um, one of the other remarkable things that Chaucer does is that he carries forward that what we call the humanist tradition into the church. Shakespeare did it. Dante did it. That is, Chaucer... Chaucer's Catholic, um, but he, he doesn't locate his stories in the church. People are not in pews saying rosaries. He's out in the world. He's showing his people doing what we do every day of our lives, at the office, in the village, privately in bedrooms, some of them not our own. Um, he goes out in the world and he shows people doing what they do in the world. But no matter where he goes, there is no bad fortune. He's showing us people doing stupid things and, um, and having to answer for them. So there's not an aspect of the world that he doesn't reveal to us. He shows the secret minds of men. There's what, what very often people don't see. He, he's doing what Dante, he learned that from Dante, obviously. So he carries the humanist tradition forward. Um, and he shows that, and I'm not exaggerating this, he shows that there's a salvific aspect that God is at work in the world. That, that's, that's the greatness of Shakespeare, that's the greatness of Faulkner, I mean, Chaucer, Dante, all of them. He goes out into the world to show us what people are doing humanly at every, at every level of society, every grade, but he's showing God at work. That there's some purpose being worked out. People are learning. So you could say, at the end of the Miller's Tale, for example, um, there isn't anybody who isn't going to learn something from what happens. Um, John's embarrassed, he's humiliated, the wife will probably not do something like again, I mean, we hope she won't. Um, Absalom's um, humiliated, and Nicholas has got a, a brand mark on his <laughs> rear end. Um, you know, so all of them have to learn that they, they have, they went into this with expectations and romance and they all come out burned in some way. So all of them have, have been brought to a point where they can grow in self-knowledge, where they have reasons for being more careful in whatever they do going ahead. That's true of everything in all, all of the stories. Um, the stories that we're gonna deal with tonight are different in one respect. Um, they're different because each of these, I've just put these together, I've tried to organize them a cert, to certain themes. All of the stories that we're dealing with tonight deal with um, church functionaries, church officials, a friar, a sumner, a partner. They, they all have a, the capacity like a priest. They're supposed to be serving the church, and every one of them is impossibly corrupt. I mean, they're just what we see. The church isn't corrupt. It's the people doing what they're doing. Um, and it, it seems to me one of the things that 
that Chaucer is showing us is um, where more is given, more is expected. And the interesting thing is where more is given, people are more tempted to abuse it. I don't know if any of you were around when, when Father first came here. I think it was when Father James when he first came here. Early sometime in the first few months when he was here, he, he, he told the story of his ordination and said that one of the priests came up to him after he was ordained, and the priest said to him, I don't know if you know it, um, um, but now you're, sorry? He said congratulations. And? Now you're. So now, now you're closer to being damned than you were before. That was one of the ways the priest had a, I mean, what, what better thing could you do? Because if you're going to take on priestly duties, you're being called to a greater service. So if you take it lightly anywhere, your sins are going to be graver than somebody else's. So I, I thought it was a good piece of wisdom, all of it. Anyway, what, what Chaucer's doing is that. He's, he's taken a group of, um, of men um, who have a responsibility to serve the church who use that power for themselves to make money. And one of the questions that I'm going to ask, Nick, everything's been funny up to this time. I think they've been funny. Um, but the question that I'm going to ask is, when we look at the friar and the seminar and the partner, is any, any one of them in danger of being a lost soul? And I mean that, pretty, a lost soul, damned. Are, are we looking at a, at a human in this tale of funny stories? Are we looking at a human being who's damned? Okay. Now remember, one of the things to keep in mind, and sorry Irene's not here because I, I know she was concerned. I hope, I hope she'll get to this. Um, when we remember, Chaucer's read Dante. He knows Dante, and he knows Boethius. He, he went to school on them. He couldn't do what he did if he hadn't. Remember in Dante, Dante's telling his story, but Dante set his story in final ends, outside of time. Right? We're outside of time. We're in final ends. The damned are there. The saved are there. Purgatory is in between, but things in purgatory are settled. Nobody's in purgatory who isn't going to heaven. So the picture that Dante gives us is so good because he shows us what, what the soul becomes if it does this. This is, where, this is where it will be. That's one of the great gifts of Dante. So he's outside of time. He's showing us final ends. Now there's a great risk in that because God says in his commandment, Chaucer's going to allude to it here, don't take God's name in vain. Now, it's not our place to damn somebody. It's not our place. That's, that's a sin. That's a mortal sin. Don't take God's name in vain doesn't mean don't swear. Damn it. That's not what it means. It means damning somebody. I mean that, you know, and meaning it. Um, and, and one of the stories is about that. Be careful of cursing and swearing. So Chaucer sets his story in this world. It's, it's humanist and sacred because he's dealing with final things but underway, under construction. Things are going on and he's showing us that world. So in one sense, he's alerting us to dangers. He's almost doing the work of a priest. He's showing us ourselves in these stories and showing us how, I think it's how important it is to laugh, but he's also showing serious things are going on here. So where more is given, more is expected. Last time, 
at, at the end of the last class, I ended the class asking, where is God? And I looked at the rhymes, and I think everybody looks stunned. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, because I want, I, I, this is not a small thing to me. I'll come back to it in a minute. This week, um, just a couple of things. Um, you can't read a Chaucer story um, without getting a sense when you come out of all of them. There's a purpose to everything because every story has a completeness in itself. So what Chaucer is showing us is that even though we're in each story, we're in a very particular life, a different set of circumstances, at some other grade of society, whatever, the knight, the partner, the wife of Beth, whoever, um, that God's at work and there's a justice to things. Otherwise, the stories wouldn't come out the way they do. I'll come back to that because I just think it's too easy for us to take that for granted and miss something that's right in front of us. And, and it's just too important to miss. Um, there's a logos. Um, everything means something. God's at work. So no matter how much things appear to be according to chance, somebody happens, you know, um, Absalom happens to come up at that moment, or in the Reeves tale, John happens to jump into bed, or, you know, or, or Alan does, and then John after him, and things work out the way they do. Everything's according to chance. People have free will. But in every one of those stories, a justice is realized. People have to answer for what happens. So there is God at work. There is a, an order to the world. There are consequences to our actions. We can't escape them. In Chaucer's world, that's a source of comedy, of good humor. It couldn't have been for the pagans. For Chaucer it is because he knows Christ has brought this extraordinary mercy. Um, Okay, this is this is one. I mean, it's to me, it's on the surface so ridiculous, but I'm going to go at it again. One of the arguments that I'm making here is that the rhyme scheme that Chaucer uses is precise, technically, a piece of evidence in support that there is a God. Now, I know that. You know, if you're gonna, if you, if you, if you're a high school student and you're reading Chaucer, the teacher's gonna say, "Here's the this rhyme royal couplets," and he's gonna leave it at that. It's just a technique. Every two lines rhymes. A A B B C. You know, you go through and rhyme. That's it. I'm saying no. That's a part of the order and purpose. Um, for this reason. You can't read two lines in Chaucer that don't rhyme because what he's saying is there's always a harmony at work every instant of our life, even if we don't see it. The problem with us is we're half blind. We think we see so well, but we don't. Once again, what the poet is giving us is this beauty and order. I tried suggesting it last week. You know, if you go into the backyard and you turn one way, you see birds, flowers, bees, trees. There's not a thing you can look at in nature that doesn't have a purpose, an order. There's not a thing in nature that doesn't have its own self. Right? Everything in nature is a subject. I've, we've gone over this. We look at a tree and objectify it. It's a tree. It's a thing other. 
But that tree is an individual, it ha its own individual self. It's a, thing of, it's a thing of its own. That was the value of Hopkins' poem. Are you all following? Everything in nature, this is St. Thomas, how it can be, can be noted as having its own individual subject self. He calls it suppositum, suppositum. Each thing is a self and has its own self. It's an individual thing. We objectify it because we, we see it as an object of our mind. One of, the, one of the results of the fall is that we tend to objectify each other. Men do it with women. Women do it with men all the time. The whole problem of our existence is overcoming that dichotomy, learning to love one another, to behold one another in love and wonder and come back together. We're meant to do that with things in nature. We don't abuse nature, we're supposed to love it. Um, if, you know, if you've ever come over to our house, you can't walk into our house and not find flowers. Suzanne will not let three days go without having flowers. I mean, she just, she goes out in the garden constantly. Um, there's such a care in what she does with flowers, you know. So, and the, the, one of the dangers of the modern world is we tend to objectify everything, particularly with abstractions, scientific abstractions. We quantify things. Poetry helps us recover that original union we had in the garden. Help us go back to it, recover some, something of it. So one of my suggestions is those rhymes are not technical, they're a constant reminder. If you, if you read it aloud, you keep hearing a harmony. There's this, it's like a buried, understated voice. You know, you read the lines, but you keep hearing dong, 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 dong. It's like bells going off. There's this beautiful harmony. It's not an accident. The poet's trying to recover a music we once had in Eden. All of us long to recover that beauty, that harmony, that order. Um, that's the first thing. Second thing is, what, so that's one of the things we get with Chaucer and his rhyming, the, you know, the way he the form in which he presents the story. The second is, what Chaucer makes clear. God, I just, I'd, I'd like to get a blowhorn tonight. What Chaucer makes clear, because I'm saying this because I had the feeling last time when I was reading. You know, thunderous fart. He kissed the hole, and I mean, all the you know, and it, it, it's going to get even worse tonight. I had the feeling that some people were a little bit squeamish about that. One of the great things that Chaucer teaches us is, I, we've lost it in the Puritan world. There is nothing to be ashamed of in our bodies. How how loud can I say that? We live in a Puritan world that, after Calvin. Because Calvin said, all's corrupt. Everything is corrupt. The body, sex, is foul. You get this language in Faulkner. I said this before when we did Faulkner. Faulkner exercised that demon. Remember when we were in Faulkner? We didn't do light, we didn't do light in August, but we did the, the mansion and the town. Remember one of the, one of the people talked about what was going on? I think probably with, maybe with uh, Eula and, and, and uh, Flem when he was married. His word for describing sexual misconduct was abomination, which comes from omen, a bad omen. It's a spiritual evil. After Calvin, the tendency of the, the modern world is to, and somewhat from the sciences after Freud, because Freud says the ultimate source of all of our problems is polymorphous perverse. 
polymorphous perverse. We are inherently corrupt. There's nothing we can do in the body unless you enter a Catholic world. And, and then where you look at the Eucharist and you enter into Christ on a cross, this is God taking on a body. You understand there's something really sacred. We misuse it all the time, but we're called to this glory. So one of the most important truths from Chaucer is that there is nothing to be ashamed about in the human body. He can talk about farts, penises, breasts, holes, arses, all of it, frying a because there's what object in the human body is not good, except for what we've done with it in our modern world. Is that not true? I hope I'm not misspeaking here. No? Well, there is waste material that is unhealthy. It's not good. Like the boy that's <laughs> but it's, but into the latrine, I, I, that's not good. I, but it's not bad. That's a what? waste material. Waste material, <laughs> you, you know, you can throw out food. It doesn't make it bad. It's an excrement. He would call it, Chaucer would call it shit. It will make you sick. I know, but that doesn't make it bad. You don't, you don't eat lots of things in nature. It doesn't make it evil. Matter isn't bad. Matter is not bad, except to a Manichaean. And, and the Catholic, modern Catholic world is infected by a Manichaean, Protestant, Puritan, good. The body is bad, spirit is good. God made nothing in nature bad. There's nothing bad in matter, even excrement. What, I just I was just gonna go there. What do people use for what do you people use excrement for? To fertilize the earth because everything everything returns to the earth. We we carry this Puritan mind into the world. There is such thing as decorum. What? Decorum and social graces. I mean that's not bad. Sure, no, I'm not. I hope I order. I'm not everything needs to be in its proper place. I'm not saying that. Decorum, education, propriety, I think they're all, I'm not, I'm not, nobody could hear me because I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, before the modern world, before the advent of the, of the Puritan spirit that's entered the world, 16th century, there was, in a, in a healthy Catholic world, there was nothing bad. After Calvin and so many of the reformers, nature is corrupt. And there's this tendency to look down on things of the body as if they're bad. So Chaucer can use this language. He can describe an arse or, you know, and when we do the, one of the tales, this fart being divided into 12, you know. Um, Chaucer's audience would have laughed at that. Lots of people today would be offended at it. It's, I, I, that's not Chaucer. I think that's us in our time. Um, at the heart of our faith is the belief that there's nothing that God made that, was, that wasn't good. There's nothing inherently bad. Even after the fall, things are wounded, not depraved. So Chaucer laughs at all of this because he has, this, I think, a greater spirit of acceptance of things than we do. We tend to be fussy and particular and so one of the gifts from Chaucer is he helps us to learn to laugh at things, to make a place. At every, at every level of society, um, you know, take a look at the Knight's Tale. Palamon are seated. They're both wounded. They both have to learn to give up their wills. In um, Allison, the Miller's Tale, 
Absalom and Nicholas are <laughs> humiliated and burned. I mean, at every level, something happens to people. So it's not like as if being educated helps you escape from these things. Chaucer's showing us God is at work everywhere. It's a little bit like the Iliad. No matter where you are in society, no matter what your stage, no matter what your education, no matter what your social standing, God is at work. Working. We're all his children. Some people may not have the advantage of getting an education. God's not going to abandon those people. Chaucer's showing us the whole of a world, every, every level of it. Um, so, one of the things that he's doing, like the poets have been doing all along, as we learn from Plato's cave, he's helping us to see through the appearances of things, to see things as they are. And, and that means to see things in love, with some joy, to laugh at them, to take delight in them, knowing God is there. Remember the quote that I gave you from, it was a major, I mean, I, and I say it knowing how hard it is, the priest had said to Suzanne once, be thankful for everything, no matter how bad it is. And if that isn't clear, look at the cross. The cross is, at the, it is the most grotesque, most Show me a horror greater than a god being nailed to a cross. There is nothing more horrible. And yet it's the most splendidly beautiful thing in the whole of our experiences. It's God going there and asking us to go there with him. To take a joy in suffering. That's Paul. All of Paul's letter. Took a joy in my pains, my sufferings for you. I mean, over and over again. How easy is that? I mean, I'm up here seeing it and realizing that I'm speaking it. <laughs> I don't know of anything harder personally in my own life, and I'm, so, and I'm trusting that it's hard for all of us. So, But to see things as they are, to be careful because too quick we make judgments. Watch the characters in the, in the stories. They're always constantly making judgments of each other. But Chaucer's outside of it. He's helping us to laugh while these people do these. They're always making judgments condemning each other, right? You go from one to another and they're, all, they're envious and jealous and judging and looking down on them. Chaucer's the one that's unifying them. He's the poet. He's stepping back from them. Otherwise, he'd be limited to, to doing what they're doing. Yeah? He's stepping back and showing us what they are. But he's doing it, what I'm going to say, through the eyes of love and wisdom. He's revealing a world to us. Okay, turn to, let me stop. Any, I want to go to these and then get to the people we're going to look at. What is art? But before I do, any, any questions about or comments on Chaucer, what you like or don't like, or anything that I've said? Was he ever exiled? Say again? Was he ever exiled because... No. He was younger before his... I think before he really wrote most of his great poetry, he was captured in the wars in France, but he was um, ransomed, and but not the way you're talking about. Yeah, uh, no, no. Yeah, no. But he, you know, you, I, it's, it's, for me, it's hard to read Chaucer. He's got um, the platonic dialogues behind him, this bonum est diffusum, this goodness is diffusive. The origins of that are Plato. He, he knows Plato. He knows Socrates. So the spirit of questioning, of standing in wonder, 
It's part of who he is. It's part of Boethius, or Boethius couldn't have done consolation for the for the lady philosophy to come to him and start asking questions. That's a Socratic dialogue. Um, Chaucer had that, and Chaucer had Dante. So, and he's clearly sensitive to, you know, what's going on the way poets tend to be. So he carries Chaucer and Dante and Plato and Aristotle and all of them, St. Augustine, they're all in him. Um, so he, he would have stood in the world with some sense of knowing, particularly you see it in the way that he treats his character. When you get too attached to the world, you get blind. There's just so much you don't see. Um, he couldn't do what he did if, if he wasn't involved in the world and still detached from it at the same time, to show it the way he does, like Dante. Turn to 176. What is a work of art? Why is this even important? It's really important here. Let me see if I can give this a special importance um, because it was special concern of my own right now. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Unplanned. It just came out on DVD a couple of months ago and um, we saw it months ago when St. Francis bought out a theater and it's about a young woman who was involved in Planned Parenthood who reaches a point where she actually sees an actual abortion and it changes, it turns her life around, turns her life around. It's a powerful movie. It's hard not to be tremendously moved. I, I believe its effect is going to be great, that lots of women are going to watch this movie and it's hard to believe they won't be discouraged from having an abortion once they see it. It's just, it's that visceral, it's that moving. But I'm aware, I'm aware, um, I, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie God is, God is not dead, and God is not dead too. Um, we've got close friends who watch the movie and really like the movie, and I, I do too. But I'm aware, watching a lot of the movies that are coming out of Hollywood today, that I would call fundamentalist movies. They're not Catholic. They're not Catholic. They're fundamentalist, and they have a power to bring people back to God. Jesus is my Savior. Um, but they lack a sacramental dimension. And if, if you've been following our work together, you know that every work that we've been dealing with in this work has a sacrament. God is entering into this world in a very visible way. And it gets explicitly sacramental in uh, Dante and Shakespeare. Winter's Tale is sacramental through and through. I'm concerned because the, the, there, there's a ton of movies coming out that, have, that take this fundamentalist character. They're, they're calling people to Christ, which is a great good, but they're calling people to Christ um, back into a world that completely lacks the sacramental. Um, Tolkien's world is sacramental to its core. If you read C.S. Lewis's Two We Have Faces, those of you who did it you know, together, you know that that sacramental psyche comes into that world and what happens at the end. So one of C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, moderns like that, Chesterton, um, John Paul, were all concerned 
because the fundamentalist nature of the modern world, its overly simplistic character, is doing away with the logos and the sacramental. Pope Benedict, Benedict sorry, Benedict wrote um, the Benedict, the uh, what was that dress in Germany, um, Regensburg, the Regensburg Address. He was addressing a Islamic and Christian fundamentalist audience, and trying to show the effects of what happens when you lose a sense of the sacramental, when you lose a sense of the logos. Um, so one of the questions that I want to, I want, I want to enlarge the context. I don't want to go into it because it's not the place. But what's art? What's the difference between a work that presents itself as art when it might be propaganda? What's the difference between a, a piece of propaganda and art? I'm going to claim that everything we've done together is art. It's not propaganda. Propaganda has an aim outside of itself. It's didactic. Art, self-contained. It has a beauty and an order and a purpose in itself. Whether it's a vase, a piece of music, a piece of literature, a song, you know, it could be a Bach cantata or art, all art is autotelic. It has an entelic in itself. Its beauty is there. It's meant to behold. Didactic art has an aim outside of it. So does pornography. It has an aim outside of itself. Art is meant to open you to a thing whose end is and beauty and purpose is in itself. So for a moment, for a moment, we can rest in that beauty. It could be Tolkien's, the fellowship. C.S. Lewis, do we have faces? It can be any of the stories read of Dante or you know. So art has its end, it has a beauty and order and purpose, a truth in itself. And we rest in it, we contemplate it, we meditate it there. It may motivate us to do something outside, but it, as a work of art, it's got to do that. Or it won't be a work of art. It'll be a piece of propaganda. Okay? So what is art? So here, take a look. So Chaucer's, remember, Chaucer is one <coughs> pilgrim among 30 or so with a host. They've all made this agreement. They're going to tell two tales on the way to Canterbury and two tales back. We never get there. It never gets finished, but that's their mm -hmm. aim. So they're on their way, and all these people are telling their tales. And at this point on page 77, the host turns to Chaucer and tells Chaucer, you tell a story. Now remember, Chaucer's telling it, right? He's, he's relating stories that have already been told. Everybody's clear on that, right? Yes, no? Yes. Okay. Chaucer's relating the words passed on to him by these people. So they're, they're tales twice removed. Okay, is that clear? He, he's telling. And by the way, every one of these stories, that, almost everyone, has already been told by somebody else, by Boccaccio or Petrarch or some other poet. So he's working like Shakespeare and all. He's taking stories that have already been done. He's just redoing them. Okay? So the host says, you tell a story. This is Chaucer the Pilgrim. This is so funny. On page 177. 177? 177? Sorry? Then you said 77. It's, it's the tale of Sir Topaz? Oh, okay. 
Okay, no, I know. Don't oh, worry, don't worry. Don't worry, but no, no, I didn't ask you to. I'm just going to go over this really quickly. I just want, I just want you all to see something tonight. Okay? So, here on 177, the host says, Come near, man, look up, look barely. Make room, because you know this host is a burly sort of a guy you could imagine at a pub having a couple of drinks and punching somebody in the nose. You know, I mean, he's just a good sort of blue-collar, down-to-earth kind of guy. Come near, man, look up, look merrily. Make room there, gentlemen. Let this man have place. He's shaped about the waist the same as me. He'd be likely popper, pop it to embrace for any woman, small and fair of face. There's something elvish in his countenance. He never speaks a word in dalliance. Doesn't play or fool around. Say something now, as other folks have done, and let it be a tale of mirth. At once, host, I replied, I hope you're not one to take it in bad part if I'm a dunce. I only know a rhyme, which for the nonce I learned. It's like some, you know, when you made to memorize things in high school and you could give off a rhyme. That's good, he said. Well, take your place. It should be dainty, judging by your face. So this is the only view we get of Chaucer, the man. And he's apologizing. He sounds shy. He's overweight. He's... Um, modest and um, self-deprecative just so he he starts to tell his tale listen lords with all your might and look at the rhyme scheme now remember there's two basic rhymes to all Chaucer's story it's either the royal couplets a a b b c c you know rhyming couplets or what's called a royal stanza i think it's a b a b b c c a b a b c c a b a b b c c so the rhymes continue and complete themselves at the end. A, B, A, B, B, C, C. It's called a royal stance, seven lines. Okay, those are the only two rhyme forms he used. Watch what he does here. So this is this dunce who looks stupid, like he can't tell a story. And he's the, he's the teller of the Canterbury Tales. Listen, lords, with all your might, and I will tell you, honor bright, a tale of mirth and game, about a fair and gentle knight, in battle, tournament, and fight. Sir Tobes was his name. A-A-B-A-A-B. Yeah, is that, did I get that right? Yeah. A-A-B-A-B. Is that right? A? A-B-B-A-A-B. Yeah. Now, what he does is tell the story of Sir Tobes, who who tells everybody he's going to go on this adventure, gets on a horse, and this is what happens, 178. Full many a maiden, bright and bower, lay longing for him hour by hour, who should have been asleep, but he was chased and fled the power of lechery, chased as bramble flower, where red the berries creep. It so befell upon a day, as I'll tell truly if I may, Sir Topaz went to ride, he mounted on his steed of gray, a lance in hand he rode away, a long sword by his side. Go on over the next page. The birds were singing, let me say, the sparrow, hawk, and popping jay. It was a joy to hear the thousand cock, the throstle cock attuned his lay. The turtle dove upon the spray sang very loud and clear. He goes on describing birds and flowers as he goes. Sir Tobas, so it came to pass, wearied of spurring o'er the grass, so very fierce his courage, that down he lay as bold as brass and eased his steed by a morass where there was splendid forage. So he lays down at night, and then on 180, he wants to um, 
he wants to find a fairy queen that he can show his love to. So the end of his adventure is to, is to go on a journey that will bring him to this fairy queen, and he knows to, to get there he's probably going to have to fight bad knights, because after all this is Sir Topaz and he's a brave knight. For not a soul in all that zone there was, and not a face was shown, no woman, not a child, until a mighty giant came on him, Sir Elephant by name, a perilous man indeed, who said, Sir Knight, by fire and flame, be off, by termagant I may, I'll maim, you and your sturdy stance with me. Look at the rhyme scheme, A-A-B-C-C-D-C-C-D-E-F-F-E. And, and E doesn't have a matching rhyme. So the rhyme scheme's falling apart, right? It's not holding together. It's starting to spread out. It's getting more diffuse. And it doesn't complete itself. So the two confront each other, and Topaz says he can't fight him that day because he doesn't have his shield, and he runs off, and the giants throw stones after him. When he gets back, he tells all of his comrades about his um, quest, and, um, and then on page 182 and 183, he sets off again for his journey, okay? But we, he never meets the queen, and he never goes back to fight the giant. 183, the host stops us. No more of this. For God's dear dignity, our host said suddenly, you're wearying me to death, I say, with your illiterate stuff. God bless my soul, I've had it about enough. My ears are aching from your frowsy story. The devil takes such rhymes, they're purgatory. That must be what's called doggerel rhyme, said he. Why so, said I, why should you hinder me in telling my tale more than another man, since I've given you the best I can? By God, he said, but plainly in a word, your dreary rhyming isn't worth a turd. <laughs> Stop. What's going on? What's wrong with Chaucer's story? The, the host doesn't do this with him. Your, your story isn't worth a turd. He doesn't stop anybody else. He's saying it isn't worth SH. <laughs> what's, what's wrong with Faulkner's story? I mean, sorry, God, Chaucer's story. What's the problem? It must be the underlying rhythm is, is discordant, right? The underlying rhythm of the, of the lines. At that point, it, it does become discordant. It's, I mean, the rhymes don't hold together, they fall apart. But the story itself, what happens? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, Chester, can you go anywhere with that? What's wrong? Can, I mean, can you elaborate on that at all? The counter of that would be what? Something. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing happened, right? He, he goes along. He's describing flowers. He's describing birds. He goes to sleep on the grass. He dreams about a fairy queen. Nothing happens. This is Chaucer. Chaucer's poking at fun of himself. Why? Because he wants us to understand what real art is. So for a story to be a real story, it has to have an action. We, we, going back to Aristotle, a plot has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has to go somewhere. Every, according to Aristotle, every story has a peripatia, a turn. You know, a moment when you see something. What happens here? He doesn't confront anybody. He doesn't deal with anything. Any growth in self-knowledge? No. no, he's got these lovely lines about the flowers and the beauty of things. And Think about poets who go on with these beautiful lines that are sentimental and 
But what do they say? I mean, in, any, in what way do they deal with anything real for us? The value of the stuff that we've been reading is we've been learning to confront our spiritual depths because we see people dealing with things that are in all of us. So for Chaucer, a story has to have an action. It has to be one thing, not another. Look at every story that we've had. And it has to be complete. It has to have a beginning, a middle, end. Now, make the, this is so clear. What would happen, this is really made, it goes back to my sense that Boethius says there's no bad fortune, that God is at work everywhere. How, does that, how is that reflected in a story? Take the Miller's Tale. How would you respond to the Miller's Tale if the story ended just when um, Nicholas sticks his rear end out and blows this fart, and Allison goes tee-hee, and Absalom goes back and goes to the uh, blacksmith. But the story stops before he gets to the blacksmith, and none of what we know happens. It just stops there. Or take the Reeves tale, and they all go to sleep at night, and John says, and all the snoring, you know, the miller and his wife and the daughter, they're all snoring, they're drunk, and, and he's saying it's not just drunk, sounds are coming out from the rear end, I mean, they're passing gas and snoring, and John says, I've had enough of this, and jumps into bed with uh, the daughter. What would happen if that story stopped just when John said, I've had enough of this? And it stops there. We don't know that he jumps into bed, the fight, everything. What would happen? How would we respond to either of those stories? It's a question mark. What happens? Right? Yes. Everybody follow? So every, sto every story, every story contains an action, a beginning, a middle, and it has a purpose, it goes somewhere, and it's contained in itself. It has a beauty and an order, so we can meditate on it. We don't have to go outside of it, we can enjoy the story on its own. If it didn't complete itself, we would be left with a sense of incompleteness. So what, what these stories are doing is helping us to feel a completeness in life that very often we miss. Because life seems so random, right? This happens, this happens, it's all chance. The guy almost ran me off the road tonight on the way to St. Francis. Yeah. The beauty of poetry is that it reveals us to ourselves, but it also gives us a sense that there's some completeness to what's going on in life that very often we miss. What's Boethius' thesis? God is never not at work. Never. So a work of art has to be complete in itself. It has to have an action. If, if, if it doesn't, if there's not a conflict, a tension, it lacks something. Tragedy, remember, always takes us towards a dark end. Comedy always takes us towards a happy ending. The two different genres. But no tragedy ever happens, according to Aristotle, that, that isn't completed in itself with the tragic end. They're the tragic hero coming to a recognition of himself. Lear, Hamlet, Oedipus. Otherwise, you've, got, you've not got tragedy, you've got horror or pity. You're shocked by what happens, and you're left in shock. Is everybody clear? 
every tragedy, and ancient tragedy, generally ends with a death, a catastrophe. But, but the growing significance of that catastrophe is something that leads the tragic hero to a, a greater knowledge of himself, to see things he didn't see before. Otherwise, you'd have horror or shock. Every tragedy helps us to recover our powers of reason. That's the importance of the, re the peripety of the turn. It recovers our balance. We're restored to life. So take that away. What do you have? What the modern world would call absurdity. Moderns can't write tragedies because they don't believe in God. So moderns will write and bring us to an absurdity at the end and drop us off there. Why doesn't Chaucer do that? Because he knows there's a God working. He would never, he would, except in his own parody of himself, you know, this Sir Topaz story, he would never do that. Because no art could be complete in itself. If it led to absurdity, it would be, it would be fractured. It would, it would leave us with a sense of incompleteness or something wrong. Let me stop for a minute. Any questions on that? Yes. I've been aware of it all along. <laughs> Let me stop. Any questions? He gave himself a title. Say? He gave himself a title. What? Chaucer. Chaucer? Yeah. You mean in the story? Yeah. What's the title? Chaucer? Huh? Topaz. Topaz, yeah. It's really funny. He's having fun with himself. He's having, but he's also showing us something. He, he, it's it's really it's it's a it's his way of showing us what real art is. It's like I mean, all good poets do that. Shakespeare does it in his plays. There's very often things in the play that help us read the play. Um, there's things in Virgil and Homer that do the same. They're they're trying to make us aware that art is doing what they're doing is different from other things, other activities. Really great art shows us God at work in the world, whether it's Homer or Virgil or Dante, Chaucer, Shakespeare. There's a beauty and order. Goodness is diffusive. Bonum est diffusum. Goodness is diffusive. It's diffusing itself everywhere. The great artists capture it. The lesser artists don't. And I'm sure you all know, if you, if you watch 90% of the stuff coming out of Hollywood, it's crap or horror. It's horror. Beauty. I mean, when's the last time? I mean, it just—it's a source of anguish. When's the last time you saw a movie that almost put you to tears at the end in a good way, because you felt you were in touch with something deeply human? You were all there. I mean, most of you were there were when we saw um, *Departures* together. Yes. I, I just—I to me, that's a good movie because it—it it helps us to see something. A pain, an anguish, a discovery. The divine came into it. Some other, you know, people were changed, their lives were changed, but in a very human way, in a very simple, ordinary way. When's the last time you saw a movie in which you felt the movie got you closer to something human in a good way? Not sentimental, not cheap, not violent. I mean, violence is okay if it's answered, but not horror. How often does Hollywood put out stuff like that? Just rare. 
is rare. Let me stop. I want to turn to the any questions about what Chaucer's doing and how important it is to laugh or recover a sense of laughter at how foolish we are to laugh at ourselves. So up there, what do, you, what do we read next? So on that little list I gave you, the Prioress, the Wife of Bath. Okay. Um, I think it's the Franklin's Tale. Wife of Bath, um, Man of Law, Prioress, and the Franklin's. The man of law, I think those are the ones. It's all the women. I might not show up next week. <laughs> it may get touchy next week. Actually, the husbands may stay home. You guys may be difficult. No, is everybody clear? Any questions about art and some of the important things in Chaucer, why, why he's so important for us. He marks the end of the Middle Ages, the Christian Middle Ages. When we go from him to Shakespeare, we go into a modern world. That world gets dark and sinister. Intrigues, castle intrigues, people plotting. The world, the world turns in on the mind and people start um, um, making plots, conspiring, Political parties, war. We enter. We are. We enter just a very, very different world. So part of the beauty of this is that we're watching. We're, we've got to work at the end of the Christian Middle Ages, when it's just before the Reformation in the modern world. No questions. What's Gita? Come on, I, you've got to have a question. No. I know you do. Even the fact that you're even looking at me. No? I, I'm not trying to put you on this. No, no question? You are not putting me on this. <laughs> okay, stop. Sorry. Carl, you don't have any questions? No. I must not be doing something right tonight. Oh, just explaining it all so well. Yeah, no question. Then I'm not doing something right. Some of the questions in the guide are excellent. I guess it would be great if we could answer all of them. Oh, it's too much. And uh, that, that was for students. Mm -hmm. You guys should just read them with a grain of salt. Susanna and I were talking about it tonight. On the, I just, we were sort of, this question about fundamentalist movies is a pretty grave one for me. But we were talking about movies and, and the work of teachers and um, Joan was talking about Tom coming home, teaches at UD, and you know when you're a teacher at school, whatever level, if, if you're if you're in um, the under schools, the undergrades, or high school, junior high school, you're you've got what 40, 50 students, you know, daily giving them homework. God, God bless. In college, you know, teachers have got four classes a semester typically say, in a good school you'd have four or five, UD does, it requires three or four papers, four papers a semester. Teachers are supposed to do this work, some don't, they just don't. And you're very often dealing with remedial students. I mean these students aren't doing eighth grade work, you know, and, and, and it's just getting passed on. And um, um, 
But at college level, you know, I mean, if you've looked at my, you're, you're asked to look at a text more closely and pay attention and think about things. And I mean, it's part of what you do. And it's important to test kids because if you don't, they have no way of knowing. They just, they don't know where they are. And it's important to help them know that they're really grasping it or they're not. Um, so the study guides are, they're, they're more thorough. But. Well, no, number 10 on page 16 of the guide is a good question because you kept talking about the body. Everything's natural, wrong, there's nothing wrong with it. But this question is, why is it fitting that people's bodies become the means of so much funny pain in the Miller's tale? Who wrote that question? <laughs> I did the book. Show me again, Linda. Can I take this Number 10. Number 10. Why is it fitting? I think I can answer that, but let me put it out because she's gone to it, and I'm glad she is, because this thing about the body is not a small thing for me. I was so glad when John Paul came out with Theology of the Body because I really believed that was an answer to one of the major disorders of our for the modern world, to help us recover our sense of our body. A Catholic world, a, a, a deeply Christian world, should see the body as sacramental, yeah? Christ took it on, and he crucified it. The, the body is the, what, the temple of the Holy Spirit, you know? It, I mean, we, we lacerate it today. We just, we're everywhere with it. Um, it's, it's, and it, sexually, the, you know, the problems we face with our bodies are great. So the, the body is a, it's a place of an agon. It's a place of a struggle. And if you live in a Manichaean age in, in which you're encouraged to believe the body is bad and the spirit is good, but there's nothing good about the body, and that's very Puritan, Calvin says that, then, it's, then the agon, the struggle that goes on concerning that body is even greater. Why is it fitting that people's bodies become the means of so much funny pain in the Miller's tale? Can anybody answer that? Anybody want to try to take it on? Funny pain, that's paradox. Well, I mean, yeah, it is. It is. Funny pain. What is funny Well, pain? so, for example, when, when, <laughs> when Absalom, well, when Nicholas... Oh, that's funny. Okay. And it's, hey, right? <laughs> so when Absalom says, let me just give you a kiss, and um, Nicholas puts out his rear and gets, yeah. blows out a thunderous fart, um, and that's, that's painful, humiliating, it's spiritual pain, you know, when, when Absalom goes away. He's so angry, he goes to get a brandy knife. Comes back and says, let me give you a kiss again. Allison goes to take a pee, and Nicholas comes out, sticks out his rear, and it's branded. And you know, when he lets out the shout, John cuts the ropes, he comes crashing down. There isn't anybody in that moment who doesn't suffer pain, either physical or... Um, and yet it's funny. Why? Why is it funny? You all laughed, didn't you? Why? Why did you laugh? Well, thunderous stories. Why did we laugh at the three stooges? Yeah, particularly when they were knocking each other down. That's all they do. But say, but take it on for a minute. What's the humor in it? Even the three stooges. What's the humor? When they're slapstick and knocking each other down. Clowns do it in a circus and everybody laughs. Why? It's violent, but it's not that hurtful. It's spontaneous. And you're laughing at yourself. 
some way, sure. I mean, yeah, all those things. Kind of over the top. Huh? It's kind of over the, the top. top. It's, it's over the norm. Mm -hmm. It's out of the norm. Yeah. The, 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 the source of most Damn. humor is incongruity. Right. You know, you're, 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 you've got your suit and tie on. You're going to a very important business meeting. Your, your life depends on it. You slip on a banana peel. Because, well, no, truly, because there is this human dignity that we have, we carry around in our pride, and then we make ourselves look stupid when these things happen, because it makes us clear we're not that in control, we're not that, you know, that we're always encouraged to see something ridiculous about ourselves that in our pride we won't admit. All comedy helps us laugh at ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, there's physical comedy and then there's intellectual comedy. Yeah, but still, they're part of com yeah, the world of comedy. I mean, I'm not a big slapstick slap person. I, I feel sorry for people. I keep hearing you laugh all the time. In our class. Uh -huh. See, you're doing it right now. Don't even look at her. Everything. Can we get this on camera, please? Somebody take a picture. That's a source of blackmail. I want a picture. That's worth money. Come on, let's look at the tales. Um, I just want to, I'm going to, instead of going through them, I just, I have a couple of major questions. Um, the seminar begins, you don't have to go through this, I just want to briefly summarize them, and I'm going to go to a couple passages, just to, the, the seminar hates friars, and we excoriates them, he, he, he has nothing good to say about them. He describes this angel's, if I remember, this person's visit to hell, and he can't find friars anywhere. And then he's taken to Satan, and Satan is made to lift up, <laughs> there's this arse again, mm -hmm. Satan is made to lift up his tail, and there in his arse, this hole, are all these friars. <laughs> and they swarm like bees, and then the guy leaves, and the tail goes down, and they all return is there a fouler image that I, I'm, I don't know, but that's how much he hates them. So you, you get this sense immediately that there are these rivalries between, an envy between the orders. That one order has very little good to say about another because it's like they're taking their place. And it's even more true if you think that what they're interested in is self-interest. They want to get money. So somebody else is getting a part of it. Remember Dante? I if, the remember the pie? If there's more people, you get less of the pie. So he has nothing good, and then he tells the story of Thomas um, cheating people, or I mean, sorry, the friar who, who's cheating people, and then he goes to Thomas's house. He tells the wife, God, this is, this is so sad. He tells the wife um, when, because he wants to get money from the two of them, um, Page 308. Before I leave you, sir, you ought to know, she said, my baby died two weeks ago. So the wife has greeted the friar. He's going to go on to see the husband. She says, my, my child died a couple weeks ago, just after you left town on visitation. Boy, is that telling. I know, I saw his death by revelation, replied the friar. In our dormitory, I saw the little fellow born to... Do you believe him? No. He didn't, but he's... He's, he's using these spiritual truths to butter her up, assuming that if he ingratiates himself with her, that she'll encourage the husband to pay. 
Um, and he says the whole order, all of us, um, saw him. Um, oh, God, it's you know, just troubling. To, anyway, um, he goes to Thomas and asks for money, and Thomas won't give it to him and starts to get really angry, and then the friar has this long speech on controlling your anger. Um, and um, Thomas says he can't give any more money. Um, on page 311, towards the top, I haven't felt that God's nose so help me Christ. I've spent a lot in hire the last few years on various kinds of friar. I, I mean, that is, the church has soaked him dry. Is that the word? Is that the? Mm -hmm. No, not the word. What is it? Bled and dry. And yet I'm none the better. I poured it out. I'm very near a debtor. Farewell my gold. It's gone no more. He can't give anymore. He's giving everything he can to the church. And now he's angry because the friar keeps pushing him. Finally Thomas says, okay, I'll, I tell you what, I do have something for you on page um, <laughs> On page 316, I swear by my faith, the friar said, clasping the hand of the poor man in bed, my hand is on it. In me shall be no lack. Well then, reach down your hand upon my back, sick man said. If you grope behind beneath my buttocks, you're sure to find something I've hidden there for secrecy. He <laughs> gropes about it. You know, God. <laughs> Thomas <laughs> passes gas in. And the friar is so humiliated, humiliated, he goes on to this manor house where he meets this couple, and he confesses them. And you know that this, to this manor couple, this priest is probably holier than thou, and they have nothing but good to say of them. I'm laughing, I'm, I'm trusting, I hope everybody's here. You know, we know from the corruptions in the church, particularly with the pedophile problems. Is it possible to think about any of those men doing anything but ingratiating themselves with people, because very often when priests are let go, congregations are outraged because they have no sense that there's something more going on that they didn't see. Yep. So Dante put us on guard about, he said, be careful, of, you know, hell is full of priests. Um, the worst in the Dallas paper this past, past week. Was it? Yeah. So there's a, a, yeah. Yeah, a number. Um, anyway, the, he goes and this couple is calling this Thomas a churl because he was so humiliating. But this squire gives an answer and he says, get a cartwheel, get the 12 friars in your house, have each one of them stick a nose up to each one of the spokes, because there's 12, and then pass gas in the middle of them. <laughs> anyway, so he says, that way you'll, you'll, you'll meet the condition that, that Thomas set, you know, that I'll give you this if you can accomplish all of this. What's interesting is they're all taking this so seriously as if it's actually a serious matter when we know it's, it's just ridiculous. Um, go over to uh, um, sorry, that's the summoner's tale. The friar tells a story about summoners and the summoner is going to um, a widow's home to um, extort money from her. On the way he meets a yeoman and the yeoman turns out to be a devil. Um, 298. Now the, the, the yeoman admits, confesses that he's the devil and um, the friar, or the, the summoner, sorry, isn't put off by that. On page 298, he says, 
and I must think of business, if I may, rather than air my intelligent gift. Besides, you lack the brains to catch my drift. If I explained, you wouldn't understand. Since you ask why you're such a busy man, it's thus. At times we are God's instrument, a means of forwarding divine events. Now, this is comic because the summoner has just been warned. His companion is the devil, and he's not going to tell him everything because he's not going to understand it anyway, and it's not enough to scare this guy off. Think about how obdurate this guy is. He's just been warned. It, it doesn't put him off. On the way, they see this farmer get stuck in the mud, and the farmer curses the wagon. This is on 300. says, the devil, take it all. The summoner says to the devil, he's cursed it. Take him now. Take him to hell. And the devil's response is, but he didn't mean it. So he's aware that there's a difference. This is so important. There's a difference between the surface meaning of words and the intent behind them. He knows when the farmer said, curse it. This is on 300. The Lord, what a team. I've never known such trouble. The devil take all cart, horse, and hay in one. Summer said, take them. There's your opening. The devil says, no, I can't because that's not the spirit of what... Um, now they get on to the woman's house on page 302. This is, to me, one of the most important passages in the three stories that we've read for tonight. He keeps trying to force this woman to pay him um, because he alleges that she's um, um, been adulterous with her husband. She's cuckolded him, and she says she's not. Um, on page 302... I've never had a summons in my life. I've never cuckolded in my poor old man. And as for you and for your frying pan, the hairiest, blackest devil out of hell, hell, carry you off and take the pan as well. <laughs> Seeing her kneel and curse, the devil spoke. Now, Mother Mabel, is this all a joke? Do you really mean the things you say? This is crucial. The devil, she said, can carry him away with pan and all unless he will repent. No, you old cow, I have no such intent, the summoner said. There's no repentance due for anything I've ever had of you. I'll strip you naked, smock and rag and clout. It's at that moment the devil takes him off. He's gone. And I want to take a second with this. It ends with a sermon, for Christ's sake will be your champion, for Christ will be your champion unite. Summoners, flee the sins that so beset you and learn repentance ere the devil gets you. Suzanne and I were talking about this the other day and she asked, I thought, what well, was a really good question. Does the devil take this guy off because she curses him? or because of his actions, or both? This is not a small question for me. It, it, when you look at the tales, this is the only one that I'm aware of that we've read together in which somebody's actually, actually damned. So this summoner, is take, this is a church official. He's being carted off to hell. How do we understand this moment? Is he there because she curses him? The devil, she said, can carry him away with pain and all, unless he will repent. Now, you old cow, I have no such intent. The summoner said, there's no repentance. I don't, I don't owe you any. And you know he screws everybody. He, he, keeps, he keeps using church offices to, to get money out of people. How do we understand this moment? I think it's extraordinary, myself. But my question is, is her, is her curse the cause? Is, is, does he go to hell because she cursed him? Or because of his actions? Because she curses him. 
Yeah, but the devil is. Oh, okay. Well, the devil's present. Now he's showing his power. I don't think that as humans we have have that authority. (laughs) I just don't. Yeah. I mean, we might say it all day long if we want to. Right. This actually shakes me a little bit. I'm not. I'm not. I'm being honest now, and I'll tell you why. Um, one, one of these three characters says in his sermonizing, he says, you don't take God's name in vain. He says the third commandment is you don't take God's name in vain. You don't, so it's not for us to... The interesting thing about this, because clearly she said unless he repents and he doesn't. So one of the things we know is that if we repent, we'll be saved. And he refuses to repent any of his sins. But she's the one who says, you go to hell unless you repent. Just hold on now. We're told, don't take God's name in vain. It's not for us. And yet the authority, I'm so glad you, the authority that God gave Peter was to bound and loosen. Is she, I'm just a question, is she speaking in Peter's behalf as a member of the church when she says, the devil can carry him away with pan and all unless he will repent? Because it's right at that moment that the devil sweeps him up. Well, no, it's his response. She called him out. She pointed out, hey, this is, it's but, wrong. But she's the one who, and, but she doesn't say, hold on, she doesn't say this is wrong. She says, curse you. To. Well, right. And she cursed him, but that was a magnification of pointing out what he was doing wrong. And he, at that point, knowing what he did, Refuses that it was pointed out when he refused. Wasn't it that they were going to take him all along? I don't know. I think, I think that we always have choice, and it's not until, I mean, my personal. Yeah. It's not, I mean, I think that, like, well, you, a lot of people. Let's stay in the stuff. story. Let's stay but in the story. I think, Concre- my, yeah. Sorry? <laughs> what? You, you opened up the can. No, but I want to stay in the story. <laughs> well, my thing is, and it kind of goes back to that, though, is, you know, until that moment of death, in my opinion, okay, until that moment of death, you have all these people, whether I agree or disagree, that could commit these atrocities or murder or what have you. And if they repent, they... Yes, I think we're all in agreement. That's church doctrine. I want to ask, I just leave you, let me just leave the question for you all, okay? Because I, I think all of us know the, that we're in sin and if we repent, we have confession, the sacraments are there. That, and it's, it's a condition of the story. It's interesting to me that Chaucer has set this up so that she curses him to hell, and at the, and, but gives it on that condition. So he has a choice. But it's still interesting to me Particularly in these stories where, where we're warned again and again, be careful of cursing or taking God's name. But she does it. She's not going to hell. There's no indication. It, when I read it, when we were talking about it the other night, it stunned me because in some ways she was speaking with Peter with that authority. I don't, I don't believe, because she doesn't say go to hell and he goes. She says go to hell unless you. But that's the interesting thing about me. That's the authority of the church. That's, an extra, that's, author, that's the authority Christ gave Peter. And here we see it. But here, it's an ordained authority. Right. I mean, you have to be ordained to have that authority. You know that ladies are allowed to do. Not ordained. 
<laughs> anyway, yes, I agree. All, all I want, I want you to all just think about that because it, it raises, we are, Peter's Peter. There's not a question. Christ gave that paper. But we, we are all, we are all asked also to be priests, prophets, kings. We're not of a sacerdotal order. We're not, we're not fundamentalists. We believe in a sacerdotal order. That's a sacramental order. So there's, but it's just interesting to me the way Chaucer set this up. Quick, because we've only got a minute. Turn to page um, 256. The, the partner tells the story of these three revelers who want to take vengeance on death. They found out that death killed one of their friends, and to get back, they're going to get back. They're going to conquer death. They go on their way. They treat this old man insultingly, and he tells them where to find death. And surely enough, they go. Now remember, in that one. The, the two sins um, that are, there's two theses that the, that, the, um, that the partner preaches. One is greed is the root of all evil. And by greed, he means avarice, gluttony, drinking, because he says in every one of these instances, if you get drunk, you lose judgment. And so for him, avarice is like the cause of all other things. That's one. The second thesis is don't swear, don't curse. When the three men hear that they can find death, they swear to each other. They make this vow. Um, when they send the youngest man off, the two men swear to each other. One of them says, you can trust my word. You know, over and over and over again, they keep doing what the uh, partner said, don't do. And you know what happens. The young kid goes to town. He gets poisoned. The two men kill him. They, they drink it because they don't know the wine is poisoned. They all die. Turn to the end. 256. Now here's my question. This is not a small one. In the, in the friar's tale, we're told a story of a summoner who goes to hell. That's a fictional character in a story. Okay? That's the story. In the friar's tale, the partner's tale, and the summoner's tale, we get three church officers who are abusing their church office. They, they, they traffic in spiritualities. They're supposed to be serving God, and they're using spiritualities for their own profit. Okay? On page 257, you remember that the three men die. The partner has just finished his story... 256, dearly beloved, God forgive your sin, keep you from vice and avarice, my holy pardon frees you all, of, provided that you make the right choices, that is with sterling's ring, that is, give me all that you got and I will pardon you. <laughs> He's just done this story that encourages people to be careful of their avarice. And, and 257, if there's anyone among you that's willing to have my absolution for a shilling devoutly given, come, do not harden your hearts, but kneel in humbleness for pardon or else receive my pardon as we go, you can renew it in every town. He can keep screwing them all as he goes along. Who can absolve you as you ply the spur in any accident that may occur? Your horse may throw you off down. You, all these bad things. Sounds like an insurance salesman today. I, you, I give you backup. It, to me, it's so modern, or so timeless. I advise our host here to begin. So he turns to the host. Remember, this is, this is blue collar, I think, as you can get. Come forward, host. You shall be your first to pay and kiss my holy relics right away. Only a croak. Come on, unbuckle your purse. No, no, he said, not I. 
May the curse of Christ descend upon me if I do. You'll have me kissing your old breeches too and swear they were the relic of a saint, although your fundament, although your fundament supplied the paint. <laughs> they're just kissing each other. They're painted dark with his... Um, now by St. Helen, by the Holy Land, I wish I had your bollocks in my hands. If I had your balls, I'd cut them off, is what he's saying. If you had your testicles, I'd... Instead of relics in a um, reliquarium, have them cut off and I will help you carry them. We'll have them shrined in you for you in a hog's turd. The partner, now the partner gets so angry, he can't speak. The host and the partner are going to go at it with each other. The knight steps in and says to the host, come, or partner, come partner, draw near my ear. Let's laugh again and keep the bottom plate. They kissed and we continued on our way. Now hold on, here's my question. So they kiss and make up, they, apparently. Is any one of those men, and maybe particularly the partner, a lost soul? And I'm asking that with that modern overtone. It's all very funny, but this guy has been selling church relics. He, he uses relics to play on people's faith to get them to pay him. Um, you remember where those people were in Dante's world. So we're not in final ends. We're not in Dante's world. We just had a story about a man damned. But we've never encountered any of the characters telling the stories. My question is, are any of these men, particularly the partner, are any of these men in danger of damnation? Gita, go ahead. What, come on, which one? Yes, I think. Which? Any, any one stand out? The partner. Yeah, can you give a reason? We've got the friar telling stories, the seminar telling stories. The partner here, go ahead. The other men don't do that. The friar, the summoner. This guy is plying wares to this group on the way to Canterbury. He seems absolutely unconscious of what he's doing. He, he's so caught. And he, he, I mean, he just brazenly. And you, host, you come up. I mean, the host fries him. You know, I mean, if I had your, but grab your balls and cut them off. You know, he's. They're furious with. He's furious with him. It's a serious question in my mind whether at this point, and it goes to Linda's comment about um, funny pain. Remember in Dante's Hell, we talked about this. Hell's not tragic, it's stupid. Whether we're not in the presence of a character like that, the way that Chaucer shows him raises a serious question in my mind whether this isn't Chaucer's treatment of a lost soul. Doesn't even see it. So while it's while it's all funny, there's a much darker aspect to this character than any of the other characters that we looked at. By far. By far. But they still have a couple of days to go, right, until they reach the shrine. So God, God's yes. providence is here. Yes. I'm glad you said. Can we make a judgment? Does does Chaucer make a judgment? No. We don't know. He's walking down the road and he hasn't. I'm so glad you, because we don't, remember, we're not in final ends. But, but, but when we look at the partner, it, it's as, of all the people that we will encounter, this is the darkest we'll see. We do the women next week. All right.
Buckle up. Tell Marcia I hope. Tell Marcia.